Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to Night Fright. Tonight, folks, we're going to be going back into the JFK assassination. As you know, um, one of our core competencies, if you will, one of the main things we do on this show is examine the JFK assassination. I'm very proud to say that Night Fright, no other show does the JFK assassination as thoroughly as Night Fright. I'm very proud of that fact, actually, because it was one of the most seminal moments of last century and this century, and it shaped from 1963 onward what happened in the world, I feel, and... Um, we're going to be going back there today, November 22nd, 1963. The shots ring out in Daly Plaza. Now, there's a series of witnesses uh, that are in Daly Plaza itself, but nobody seems to have seen anything that happened behind the picket fence. That is the grassy knoll that we all have come to know, except until now. And that person was the name of Ed Hoffman, now, Ed Hoffman saw the shooter. He saw him take his gun apart and pass it to somebody else to hide. He tried to get the attention of law enforcement, but law enforcement just virtually turned a blind eye. Now, I use that term blind because Ed was deaf and dumb. He had a hard time. Actually, the people listening to him, trying to understand him, had a hard time interpreting him. There are two guests tonight in the first part of the show. Uh, is Brian Edwards, and the second part is Casey J. Quinlan. They've released a new book called Beyond the Fence Line, the eyewitness account of Ed Hoffman and the murder of President Kennedy. It is superb. Easy way to get the book, www.nightfrightshow.com. As always, we're going to be looking at a real live witness tonight, folks, one who actually saw the shooter behind the picket fence, and that makes all the difference in the world, folks. <coughs> Strap in and hang on. It's going to be a wild one. Here we go. <laughs> There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Welcome, welcome, folks. Welcome to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. November 22nd, 1963. Shots ring out in Daly Plaza. A witness has a bird's eye view of what's going on behind the picket fence. That infamous grassy you knoll, the picket fence is on top of it. He sees the shooter. He sees the shooter take the gun apart and pass it to one of his aides. Now, he races to find law enforcement to tell him what he has witnessed, what he has seen. Law enforcement doesn't understand him. Why? Because he's deaf and dumb. Now, this is going to plague the, his story throughout the whole scenario of the JFK assassination. 
our two guests tonight. We've got one at the top of the hour and another one at the bottom of the hour are Brian Edwards and Casey J. Quinlan. They've got a new book out, which I'm holding up right here, and you're going to be able to see on this side, I believe, after I've edited it. Uh, the book is called Beyond the Fence Line, the Eyewitness Account of Ed Hoffman and the Murder of President Kennedy. Let me just start off with uh, Brian Edwards. I'm just going to read a bit of his bio for you here, folks. From 1978-1997, Brian Edwards served as a police officer with the Lawrence, Kansas Police Department where he was assigned to patrol division and was the department's crime scene photographer. In addition, from 1981 to 1996, Mr. Edwards served on the department's crisis response team as a counter-sniper. Oh, buddy. (laughs) We're going to talk about that. Uh, He received his master's degree in criminal justice from the Washburn University and served as an adjutant instructor from 1996 to 2005 in both the undergraduate and graduate criminal justice programs. Mr. Edwards has been studying the JFK assassination since 69. Mr. Edwards has personally interviewed over 30 witnesses relating to the assassination from eyewitnesses, police officers, and medical personnel, both at Parkland and Bethesda. It's my pleasure to welcome, for the first part of the show, Brian Edwards. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brent. It's good to be here. It certainly is great to have you. Let's jump in right away at Hoffman. Um, this is a revelation. You know, many people come to me and say, ah, you're an assassination uh, nut job, and, you know, it was one lone nut assassin, and they don't know the first thing about the assassination, what has come forward since 1963. For example, Sherry Feaster, who's <coughs> on the show, um, CSI, uh, she found a frontal shot as well. Let's talk a little bit about Ed. What did Ed witness that day? Well, Ed has Ed passed was, away, folks. I apologize. I should have mentioned that. Ed, uh, Ed was uh, worked at uh, Texas Instruments, and on his morning break, uh, was drinking a Coke and uh, chewing ice as his habit, and uh, he broke a tooth, uh, just serendipitously. You know, this this just from a broken tooth, all this I'm about to describe happened. He uh, he asked for permission to. Uh, go to his dentist which was in Grand Prairie which was between on the other side of downtown Dallas and he was given permission and uh, on his way towards his dentist he noticed that there were some cars parked along Stemmons Freeway and he's he's told us that he remembered at that point that President Kennedy was in town and there was going to be a parade so he pulled off into Dealey Plaza looking for a place to park and of course the police had blocked most of the main streets and there was no place for him to park and get out and watch so he drove through Dealey Plaza out onto Stemmons Freeway which was the same route that President Kennedy's motorcade would take within the next hour or so and parked his car uh, along the shoulder of the road uh, just just underneath or or just underneath the uh, railroad trestle that went across uh, Stemmons Freeway while he was walking back, and you mentioned that he was deaf, he was, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't bothered by traffic zooming by at 70 miles an hour. And his first, his first vantage point was underneath the underpass, and realized that he would get a better vantage point, a uh, better view from above. So he went up on top of the overpass, so he could look down on the entrance ramp onto Stemmons Freeway. While he stood there, he said he he got there about. Uh, about 12 o'clock and he said that as he was watching the activity behind the fence he noticed uh, one man 
uh, wearing a suit, heavy set, with a hat, uh, like a, a fedora hat, walking along the fence line. And uh, Ed paid no particular attention to him because he wasn't doing anything unusual. But what he did see uh, subsequently after 12, 12 o'clock, 12.05, uh, a car pulled into that parking lot and drove around like it was looking for a parking space. He, and Ed said that it eventually didn't find a place to park and drove out the same way it had come in. Within five minutes, uh, Ed then saw another car pull through. This was a different car, completely different, uh, and Ed described it as a green two-tone uh, Rambler station wagon. Well, the Rambler station wagon will come into play later in the story, but Ed's described it specifically as a rambler and we asked him you know how do you know it was a rambler and he said well my good friend uh, has one exactly like that and I, re I recognize the model and make um, five minutes or so later after that car drove around and Ed said he, he lost sight of that car that rambler he said another car pulled through didn't pay much attention to it but then he noticed the man that he had seen earlier with the hat and the sport coat walking along the fence he had walked towards uh, and it walked in Ed's direction uh, and stopped and talked to a man who was standing by one of the railroad switch boxes. Uh, Ed said that it appeared that these two men were conversing. Of course, Ed was about 200 yards away. He couldn't tell what they were saying, and even if he could tell, he wouldn't be able to hear it. But he noticed the two men appeared to be together. Uh, a few minutes later, this man, the two men separated, and the man went back by the fence, and before it was right at 12:30. Ed said he noticed uh, the man stand up and had a rifle. Uh, he saw saw this man with the hat uh, point this rifle over the fence. Of course, Ed wouldn't be able to hear the shot, but he said he saw smoke. And Ed's immediate reaction was that maybe this guy was smoking a cigar or a cigarette. But he said that was too much smoke from a from a cigarette or a cigar. And he says as soon as this man turned in Ed's direction, he was holding the rifle up across his chest. He could tell now that it was a rifle. And, of course, by now, President Kennedy was coming underneath the underpass, and he could see uh, the president lying in the back seat of the limousine. Jackie Kennedy was over the top of him, shaking him. And Ed said that the back of the president's head had a hole the size of your fist between the ear, the right ear, and the right uh, the right in the middle, middle middle line of the skull well the irony of that is that Ed was the first civilian to see the president's wound and then when Ed turned his attention back away from the, the motorcade he noticed that this man that had held the rifle up again that had fired it over the fence was <coughs> excuse me was running or was running towards this man who was standing by the railroad overpass Ed said the man suddenly stopped, I mean, just dead in his tracks, and tossed underhand that rifle to this man in the railroad outfit who was standing by the, by the railroad tower or the railroad switch box that the man caught it, took it apart, and put it in a soft canvas-type bag and walked north out of the uh, parking lot. <coughs> Excuse me. Ed realized that the, the connection was this man fired a rifle, President Kennedy's got a giant hole in his head. Maybe the two were connected. So Ed ran towards where his car was parked because he remembered seeing an officer, at least one officer in uniform, standing on top of the trestle, the railroad trestle. And as Ed ran down the road, he was waving his hands. Well, by now, the follow-up car had come up, and 
Ed's told us, and he's always maintained the same story, <clears throat> that one of the men in that car had a machine gun, and it pointed it at Ed as he was running towards the towards his car. <clears throat> Ed got back to his car and tried to. His, his motive was to get behind the fence to see if he could find either one of those two men that he had seen earlier, the man with the with the rifle or the man that took the rifle out of Dealey Plaza. And, of course, Ed couldn't get back there. He, it, he told us that it took him almost an hour to go two blocks because of traffic congestion and the police were trying to seal off the area. So Ed continued on to his dentist. And uh, funny part of, this, of that story is that when he got to his dentist's office, the radio was playing in the dentist's office. Of course, Ed couldn't hear it, but he had told the, the receptionist that he was... He had seen President Kennedy uh, assassinated, and of course, his in his, you know, inability to communicate effectively, he had to write it on a piece of paper. And of course, the people in the in the, the receptionist and her assistant had no idea what he was talking about. Well, he finally got into the dentist chair and he told his dentist that that um, that he had seen President Kennedy killed. Well, the dentist didn't believe him. Went out and listened to the radio, and of course, now the radio broadcasts were. That's all they talked about. And um, he came in and told Ed, he says, President Kennedy's been shot. And Ed said, I know, I, I saw that. I was there. <clears throat> and um, so Ed got his tooth fixed, went to uh, went back to his, uh, his father and mother's uh, uh, floral shop in Grand Prairie and tried to tell his father and mother what he had seen. And, of course, they, it's not that they didn't believe him, but <clears throat> Ed's father's first reaction was well don't let the police do their job and, and don't bother him well <coughs> he um, the, his his wife and Ed and his wife were celebrating their uh, wedding anniversary on the November 22nd 1963 and uh, they were going to go out but he Ed asked his wife you know I want to tell you this story, but I want to show you where I was standing. So they went out on the highway and, and were able to see behind the picket fence and see the parking lot. And, of course, Ed's father still didn't want him to contact law enforcement because he was fearful for his life, I think, because he was protecting his you know his child. But I think that was the, the sad part of Ed's story is that he never got a chance to tell anybody until 1967. And that is the sad part of the story. Now, uh, unfortunately, nobody was believing poor Ed Hoffman. Um, you know, here, here's a guy that's witnessed uh, the biggest event in recent history, uh, even bigger than um, Pearl Harbor, uh, and some say even bigger than 9-11. And uh, nobody is giving him the time of day now. What happened consequently after that? Was he called to the House Select Committee to assassinations? No, he was not. He uh, he gave uh, when his father he in 1967 his father was uh, had just passed or his no his father was still alive, and he had told people at his place of business that at Texas Instruments what he had seen, and they kept pressuring him. You you know you need to tell somebody what you saw. Well, 1967, the case was closed on the 24th of November when Oswald was shot. According to the government, that's that ends the case. We have no suspect. We have no crime. But Ed finally went to the FBI in Dallas and spoke to an agent and tried to explain to him what he had seen. Well, 
Ed had to rely on drawings, crudely drawed, uh, drawn of Dealey Plaza. And Ed said they took him in a room with a with a mirror on one wall, and they said, "Don't worry about the mirror. There's nobody behind that. You know, you know, I'll take door number two, kind of thing." He said, "I I told the the agent my story. It, I don't think he believed me, but he was very nice, and he he took notes. Now that's the key part: is he the agent took notes, but they don't appear anywhere in the FBI's documents of the interview with Ed Hoffman. I mean, the field notes should have been in there with the original case file. Well, <clears throat> when Ed Ed went home, and the agent had called uh, Ed's father's place of business, and Ed's father just went went ballistic and said, I told you not to talk to anybody. Now I can't protect you if something happens to you. So Ed never contacted anybody else until 1976. When he told the same story, nobody believed him. <coughs> nobody wanted to hear his story. And the, both times, the FBI knew in advance that they were going to be interviewing somebody who was unable to talk, but they didn't have an interpreter back then and so Ed's story got lost in the shuffle basically gee whiz you know um, <coughs> incredible story folks the book is called Beyond the Fence Line the eyewitness account of Ed Hoffman and the murder of President Kennedy and it's by uh, two writers we're going to be joined by the second writer at the bottom of the hour Casey J. Quinlan right now we're speaking with Brian Edwards Brian you were in law enforcement how was Ed's case screwed up? I mean, um, do you think it was just a, a matter of incompetence, or do you think it was a little bit of, uh, as I mentioned before, perhaps a stigma that was surrounded, uh, that may have surrounded somebody who was deaf and dumb in those days? Well, if, let me correct you about the deaf and dumb part. That's what, in 1960s, if you had a deficiency of either speaking or hearing, that's what you were considered, deaf and dumb. I can tell you, uh, and Casey will, will uh, certainly support me, we've interviewed Ed probably, we've known Ed for 20 years, and at no point did I ever consider him dumb. Oh, no, I, I should well, clarify I, that. Yeah, I just, right, I, and, I, that's, and that's the stigma, that's part of the stigma. I always, that, I, see, I always thought dumb, <clears throat> I'm not trying to defend myself for, for anybody, I always thought dumb meant that a person could not talk. Oh, Okay. Okay, that, and, and that's that's the other problem is communication is is even Ed Ed never learned American Sign Language, he he learned the old style of actually spelling every word, even his daughter had trouble sometimes because she learned to speak, uh, you know, through American Sign Language, and the two of them the two the two forms the two styles never cohesed together, so even communicating to his daughter was difficult, but the basic story of Ed is that. He saw what he saw. I mean, he saw things, Brent, he only saw things that, that were verified by other witnesses who didn't know each other, Warren Commission testimony, which Ed never read, or the actual eyewitnesses who were there. Now, four of those things I described in this story, that you know, subcompact version, is that there's only one way that he would have known those things is if he was there. I mean, he couldn't have he couldn't have known about the back of the head being gone. He couldn't have known about uh, the Rambler station wagon, which was seen by six other witnesses. Uh, he couldn't have known about the the man in the suit because he was that man in the suit was later confronted by uh, Officer Joe Marshall Smith of the Dallas Police Department, who showed Secret Service credentials. Ed saw that that event. So, <clears throat> I guess to answer your question, I think he was, in my opinion, he's 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 honest. He's very sincere. He knows what he saw, but law enforcement 
back then, uh, you know, the first time he contacts law enforcement in 1967, the case is closed and, and law enforcement doesn't care. Certainly the FBI wouldn't want to open up a new can of worms. And <clears throat> in fact, we read Ed's uh, FBI report. Uh, Ed said he never said it that way. And of course, with no interpreter, you know, it it's just a matter of the person receiving the information writes down what he thinks the person said. So from a law enforcement standpoint, no, I think uh, FBI... We're doing this via Skype, folks, and sometimes we have a bit of a problem, but uh, I'm sure it's going to come back in just a second. Just to let you know, we're speaking with uh, Brian K. Edwards right now. We're talking about his book that he's co-written with Casey Quinlan, who's going to be joining us at the bottom of the hour very shortly. There you go. Hey, we're back. Sorry. That's all right. <clears throat> There we go. We're speaking with we're speaking with Brian Edwards right now. We're talking about his book Beyond the Fence Line, the eyewitness account of Ed Hoffman and the murder of President Kennedy. We're going to be joined in a few minutes by Casey Quinlan. Uh, Ed Hoffman, of course, was a deaf person, and um, he couldn't speak because of that. He had a hard time trying to relate his narrative, his story, what he witnessed. Um, to law enforcement. Law enforcement had a heck of a time trying to understand him and just neglected uh, to even uh, give him the time of day, which is tragic because he virtually witnessed what was happening behind the picket fence, which was a rarity because everybody else that it was a witness was in front of the picket fence during the Kennedy assassination. Right. Um, you were a sniper. Right. Could Oswald have done... <clears throat> The shooting job he did. You know, we get we get asked that, or I get asked that question a lot. Sure. Let's put it, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. I I would not put myself if if I was the lone if I was by myself going to shoot anybody, I would not put myself in that position up 60, 70 feet up in the air shooting at an angle. The hardest shot in, in from for a sniper or anybody to a hunter or a hunter is to shoot from high to low. There's too many variables. You know, the easiest shot would have been for the target is coming down Houston Street right towards the uh, towards where you would be positioned. That's where I would have taken the shot. Why do you know? Why did Oswald or whoever was in the building wait until the car was going away from you, a moving target inside a moving vehicle? You know, 187 feet away. That that's just you know the superior shooters of today couldn't do that. I mean, I I would never. I would never attempt something like that, but you know that's. I think that's the reason why there was no shots taken because it would have given the position away. I think they waited and they, whoever they were, whoever the other shooters were, they waited until they were in a position where they could all triangulate into one spot. I mean that's a typical standard military operation: is you put people in front, you people people on the side, and people behind, so the target can't go anywhere. It can't stop, it can't back up, it can't go forward, and wherever it goes, it's going to run into a, you know, the field of fire is going to be right in front of them. Where would you have, if you were in charge of the shooting teams that day, where would you have placed them? I would put, uh, I would put a shooter low, flat trajectory somewhere in front uh, to the side of the target uh, behind the grassy knoll by the fence. You've got concealment You've got, uh, you've got nobody can see you. I mean, you're behind a fence. Uh, I would be, I would certainly would weigh in a 
some type of disguise, like a police uniform or a, you know, a suit and have some type of identification. I would put another shooter in the Dow Tex building, which is adjacent to the Texas School Book Depository on the second floor, perhaps. The target makes the turn and goes down Elm Street. You simply point the barrel of the rifle towards the lane of traffic and just wait for him to show, show up in your crosshairs and you pull the trigger. Uh, I would put a shooter, and you've talked to Sherry Feaster, uh, I am in complete agreements where she puts the fatal head, headshot coming from the south knoll. That's a great spot. You've got great cover and concealment. And then the final place I would put somebody would be <clears throat> if, if I had multiple people at my disposal. disposal, I would put somebody at the west end of the picket fence. Uh, again, you've got two people in front, you've got two people on the back, and you've got one person on the, on the right side. You can't, can't put anybody on the left side. There's too far of a shot. But I'm, I'm going to put six people in there. I'm going to put six people, one or two, with, with, a, with a spotter and a security officer. Probably the guy on the, in the, on the uh, picket fence is going to have a security person with him so that he can, you know, in case he's focusing in on the target, somebody doesn't walk up behind him. So... I think you've got uh, I think you've got six six or seven people out there, and and not if not everybody had to take a shot. Would there have been a way to coordinate the shots so that they would all come in and around the yes. same time? Yes. How yes. Would you absolutely, do that? Brian. Uh, <clears throat> the first the first shot that's fired is your signal for everyone else to fire, and it sounds a perfect example. A good analogy is you. I'm sure you've been to a, a military funeral of some kind where they have seven shooters, seven yes, military officers firing a 21-gun salute. Uh, how, many, how many sounds do you hear? You hear one, but you hear it three times. You hear three shots, three rounds fired by seven men. It sounds like one shot. And I think the people that were involved in this shooting were, were highly trained military people who had done this before. And, yeah, they, they were well, well, this wasn't thought up overnight. This was well planned out. These are professional hunters or military people I think that's uh, you know you brought up a great point about the uh, 21 gun salute or the, you know the three bill and it sounds as one that's no question yeah. folks we've been talking with Brian Edwards we're talking about his new book that he's got out with Casey Quinlan called Beyond the Fence Line the eyewitness account of Ed Hoffman and the murder of President Kennedy and some revelations there folks uh, eyewitness he witnessed everything Ed Hoffman behind that took place behind right. and I keep saying that because most of the witnesses that are out there were in front of the picket fence the opposite side he witnessed the shooters uh, he witnessed that the shooter brought his gun to another confrere and they broke it down and they escaped. Now, uh, you know, this is an amazing story. Now, they all took off to the north. Um, it just amazes me that, that people still uh, cling to the old Warren Commission and say, nah, it was one lone nut. <laughs> Do you think it's just a comfort factor? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, that, that's... That's a great, uh, great um, analysis. It's easier to say one person did it and, and put the blame on one guy because if you do that, you throw all your eggs in one basket, then you don't look outside. And In fact, Casey and I were just talking the other day about the, government, about the uh, Warren Commission, their findings. I don't know if you've read the 26 volumes, but I've been stupid enough to read it twice from cover to cover, all 26 volumes. And they didn't care what the official, what, what the real what the events actually showed it was simply a matter of 
what can we do, what can we show to make the public believe that Oswald had the capability to do this terrible thing. And if it didn't point to Oswald, they didn't look at it. And that's, that's the tragedy of the government's investigation. And then in 1976, we had the, the government investigation reopened. And now we have two versions of the same event by the government. One saying there's no conspiracy in 1964. And in 1976, they say there was a conspiracy. So who do you believe? I know what I believe. I believe there was a massive conspiracy, not only to actually pull the thing off, but to cover it up. The cover-up began within four hours of the assassination by Lyndon Johnson. So, um, you know, that's you open that can and you get a whole bunch of worms coming out of it. But uh, certainly had a lot to, you know, from a law enforcement standpoint, the first person I would have interviewed under oath would have been the guy who's, who, who benefited from the death of President Kennedy. But they never did. They took a written, he gave, he gave a voluntarily obtained written statement, and that's in the Warren Commission, that's in volume 16 of the Warren Commission documents, and of course he's not under oath, so he can say whatever he wants, but I think if we ever had a chance to go to a grand jury, I think we have enough evidence to, to bring bring a lawsuit uh, for her wrongful death, and a lot of those people, are, of course, now are dead, but uh, I, I don't, I never believed that when I first did my I did my first paper of it in ninth grade. I didn't believe the government's story. I just it didn't make any sense why one guy who suddenly went from having fired a rifle since the Marine Corps and suddenly was able to pull off world-class precision in this one event in the history of the world. And since 1964, nobody's ever been able to produce the same kind of results of the same rifle. That that right there sells the whole case down the drain to me. Absolutely. If you can't, if you can't, if you can't do the shooting, then, then you've got another shooter, and the and the wounds don't match with one shot, and the, the single bullet theory propagated by Arlen Specter is the is the most laughable thing since the Snow White and Seven Dwarfs story came out. But <laughs> I, I won't go. I won't go there. So do you you believe it was a coup d'état then? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. Do you feel that the the, the people that were in place in those days that committed the coup d'état uh, did they propagate all the presidents after that, or has it swung back now to? You know, you know, if if this would happen today, please, you know, if you're out there thinking about, often the, uh, an official of the federal government don't oh, do God it. But, forbid, God forbid. <laughs> don't do that. But I think I think with the with the technology we have and the instantaneous uh, ability to obtain news and send it out worldwide. I don't think I don't think it could be done again. I, I think the times were ripe. Uh, the media received everything they got from sources that they didn't name. I mean, people were feeding them information. You know, the day before the assassination, to say, you know, you got to take a look at this guy Oswald. He sure is a strange character. And then all of a sudden, the first day's news, the next day, they had a whole complete profile of this of this unknown person who happened just to live in Russia and come back with a Russian wife and get a job at the book depository. And I think <clears throat> somebody asked me one time when I did a lecture, who would be the, if, if everybody was alive now, that was alive back then, who would be the first top three people you'd want to interview? One, one would be Lyndon Johnson, two would be Ruth Payne, and three would be the chief of police of Dallas, Texas. Uh, I think a lot of those folks have a lot of information that they didn't come forward with. Uh, for example, Chief Curry, the Dallas police chief, he knew uh, Oswald was in town. He was given information by the FBI uh, agent in, in uh, Dallas, James Hosty, who was eventually transferred to Kansas City. 
uh, and said, you know, we knew he was in town and we just didn't think he was capable of doing something like this. And they didn't transfer that information to the Secret Service. So there's a lot of culpability between the Dallas police and the Dallas sheriff and the, and the uh, FBI. And, uh, you know, well, you know, you bring up an interesting point there, uh, Brian, because one thing I always found curious, if you're going to shoot the President of the United States, why would you do it? You see folks in Daly Plaza, there was uh, a police uh, station right there in Daisy, Daly Plaza. I always right. fi- thought that was absolutely bizarre. If you're going to off, as you mentioned yeah. before, the President of the United States... Why would you do it in full daylight in front exactly. of a exactly. police department? Right. Well, I don't know if you know it or not, but Bill Decker, the sheriff of Dallas, Texas, told his men the morning of the assassination that, that uh, his men, that anybody on the sheriff's department, was not to participate in any way, shape, or form with security. Well, it's standard procedure. When, yeah. For example, when Hillary Clinton came to Lawrence, Kansas in 1990 or before, whatever it was before they got in the White House, we supplemented our security with every law enforcement agency within a 40-mile radius. I mean, here's the President of the United States in a known hostile environment that they, they already had information that there were threats on his life and driving right past the Sheriff's Department, and they're all out standing and waving the flag and not able to participate in any part of the security. I mean, you would have supplemented the entire security. I mean, the, the Dallas police would have had everybody working. I mean, I don't know if you know it or not, but... Uh, the Dallas Police Department had about 1,200 members, uniformed cops, in 1963. Half of them were on their days off, their normal days off. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't and, know that. And, and half of them were called in. Detectives were called in to help, in, you know, with the investigation. But everybody else was on, you know, if they were, if that was your day off and it fell on Friday, that's fine. You just take the day off. I mean, that's unheard of. I mean, that's crazy. And people always remind me, you know, step back a little bit. That was 48 years ago. I said, I, I understand that, but... The president of the United States needs this, you know, yes. needs help. You got to have supplemental. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the motorcade security of the Dallas Police Department ended at the corner at the intersection of Elm and Houston. That was it. There was no police except two officers standing on the triple overpass, and that that's one of my. If you've read the book, you'll that's you'll right. see the testimony of. Foster, it was, you know, he was supposed to keep everybody off the railroad bridge over the top of the president in an open limousine. And and he, uh, when he testified, he said, well, I kept everybody off there except those 16 people. So, <laughs> so he didn't do his job. All he, he had to do was drop a brick on Kennedy. Exactly. Head. Exactly. I mean, he would have been the, one, the first one of the guys I would have fired for not doing his duty. Absolutely. And the yeah. interrogation, well, I've got you, the interrogation of Oswald? Yeah, we, uh, well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've we've interviewed Jim Lavelle many times, and he's a. I mean, he's a great old guy. But you know, I asked him in front of a thousand people one day at uh, one of the Ask the uh, Assassination conferences in Dallas, and I said, uh, "We understand through you know the stories that uh, you didn't keep records of anybody, uh, and nobody kept records of Oswald's interrogation." And he said point blank. He said, "That's right. We didn't keep notes." And I kind of looked at him kind of like I was trying to figure out a trig problem. I, what do you mean you didn't take any notes? Now, here's the most important prisoner you ever had in your entire career, and you didn't take notes of what he said. And Jim Lavelle looked at me dead straight in the eye and says, well, it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have changed the outcome of the case. We know what he said. You have reporters filling that entire police department with a pad and a piece of paper, you know, a paper and a pencil. Just grab one of them, throw them in the room and say, take down everything this guy says. They didn't do it because they didn't care what he said. They had their man. 
and that was it. And anybody else that throws up and says, hey, I'm, I'm a suspect in the Kennedy assassination, well, if you're not Oswald, you're not it. You know, we didn't, you didn't see Oswald do it. You didn't see anything. And that was their mentality. And that's the sad part is that, that the investigation was flawed from the word. From the moment that, that Oswald got away, I think that's when the investigation just took a dive and, and everything suffered as a result. I mean, they, they didn't care what, what everybody else said. If, if Oswald wasn't involved, then we don't want to know about it. I mean, there's countless, countless stories in the Warren Commission testimony that, that support that. I just, it's, it's really sad. Uh, we're going to run out of time, and I want to get Casey on. Um, folks, we've been uh, – thank you very much, Brian. I'm just going to introduce Casey now if you just want to switch uh, headphones over. Folks, if you're just joining us, November 22nd, 1963, we're talking about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, we're talking about a new book called Beyond the Fence Line, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover. That'll take you right to a spot. We can order this book online. Casey J. Quinlan was born in Kansas City. Doesn't make him a bad person, folks. And grew up in Shawnee, Michigan, Kansas. He was 13 years old when President Kennedy was tragically murdered. And you know, folks, honest to God, the earth changed that day. Um, everything, the, the promise, the hope and promise uh, was just gone in an instant. Uh, for the past 48 years, Mr. Quinlan has read over 1,000 books and countless articles in trying to establish the truth behind this political assassination. He's a teaching degrees in social studies and American history from Emporia State University in Emporia, Kansas. He's a Vietnam veteran. Thank you for your service. And served as a medical specialist attached to Brooks Army Medical Facility in Fort Sam, Houston, Texas, and was later reassigned to the 9th Infantry Division in Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, Mr. Quinlan continues to write articles. Uh, where's, uh, oh, here we go. His course, Assassinations in America, serves as a focal point for the criminal investigation in the murder of President John F. Kennedy. And Casey, that's where I want to go right now. Let's talk about this course, Assassinations in America. And what do the young folks get out of this? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having uh, Brian and I both on. And it's uh, uh, a pleasure to at least talk to somebody who's uh, eloquent as you so that we can get some of these stories out. You're very um, gracious. Thank you, sir. Well, I asked for... Uh, uh, I guess the last 35 years, I, I've been a high school teacher as well as a, an adjunct professor at several universities along with Brian, and we've put together several courses that um, uh, looked into not only uh, uh, the assassination of President Kennedy, but all the assassinations that have taken place in American history. And we've, uh, but, but our focal point was on, on the murder of JFK, which was, for the most part, when it first started um, – it was fairly new, and now it's become ancient history, as as you well know, yes. 48 years after the fact. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the a lot of our students uh, really got into it primarily because, and and I'd have to say because because of myself and also Brian because we we would get into the crowd, we would uh, uh, have a passion about what we were trying to teach. And our, our students would, would just keep coming back day after day. And uh, part of that passion is that we were looking for the truth, and we also wanted them to ask pertinent questions. And a lot of the questions uh, that, that they asked 
we couldn't we couldn't answer and so it it, it expanded over uh, probably a period of about 40 to 40 46 years so we're we are continuing to do that not only at the high school level but we're doing that at the college level as well inspiring them to ask questions and question everything as i like to tell my own nephews as well um what are the types of things that you teach uh in the what is the course uh, content well, uh, first off, uh, usually most of our students, uh, uh, that if they're 16 to maybe 19 at the high school level, then they're probably about 17 to probably about 24 on the average at the uh, college level. But every now and then we'll have students, uh, some of our older students that we've had are age 66 and 72, which was pretty fantastic because they were older, older than us. And they had a pretty good idea of what happened back then, and we used them quite a bit in our class. But for the most part, we had to we had to go someplace to begin with. And uh, uh, as a history teacher, I went back to probably about the 1930s, uh, leading up to World War II, and then establishing uh, the United States military, and then the idea of covert intelligences, uh, not only in the United States, uh, but also in the in, in Japan as well as uh, Germany and then from there uh, opening up 1945 19 through 1947 uh, uh, the thermonuclear age and then getting into that aspect and saying okay did we need covert intelligence so I, I had to start somewhere uh, and, and that's where we started and we built up through the 1960s and it was a little bit easier for my students to at least understand where we were going and how we were going to get there but 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 we tried to establish World War II and the idea of covert intelligence in and around the United States and the rest of the world do you feel night November 22nd 1963 we lost our innocence or do you think it was lost long before that well I would say that we did lose our innocence at that time um, I, but it was kind of an overt loss. Hmm. I don't think I don't think most of us even knew that we had lost it prior to that because uh, the way our history tells us certain things, we we believe what our historians tell us. Once we start to question some of our history and historians, then we have to go back and try to figure out who actually wrote the history and why it was produced this way. And so uh, uh, it, it's kind of a quasi answer. I. I, I I think we overtly lost it on November 22nd, 1963, but when you start to page back through that, we lost it long before that, but a lot of people didn't know that. I, I, I've had several several students ask me, they, they, they would ask me questions like, well, do you, do you think the United States government is, has been overthrown? And I said, the United States government was overthrown on November 22nd, 1963. You just don't know it. Wow. Um, what is the response to that? I mean, you're talking about young people uh, that are just at the beginning of their lives, their whole future's in front of them. How do they react to something like that? Well, a lot of them, a lot of them uh, are, are, are kind of in, in disbelief because they, they would sit back and say, well, this is what I've read. And I said, well, I'm not going to challenge on what you read right now. I said, I want you to build upon what you think you have read, what you think you understand, how you comprehend that. And then what I want to do is is to add to you and into your to your vocabulary and to your knowledge information that has been left out and if that information has been left out if it can change 
your idea of looking at uh, questions and answers uh, throughout history, then that's that's where we're going to go. And so once we got to that particular challenge, uh, I didn't really worry too much about the paperwork of, of my students. I was worrying about whether I I could capture their mind and, and their yes. and their ability to think and ask questions. And that was the that's that was the key thing that I think a lot of our kids just caught on to that. You know, Casey, that's really refreshing to hear because um, I, I had Jim Mars on the show several weeks ago, and I yeah. we were both discussing education today. And in my day, as uh, Jim and I were talking about, we were taught exactly what you're teaching, to think for ourselves, to explore and challenge things. Um, and he was saying, and I agreed with him, uh, most of what he was saying was the fact that there seems to be an agenda being taught in the schools. Uh, do you feel that is the case, or do you feel that perhaps that's just being a little bit paranoid? No, I I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, I um, I think that started coming in about 10, 15 years ago, uh, and the curriculum changes, and the uh, obviously when No Child Left Left Behind came in, I was. I, I was not an advocate of it. I'm not really an advocate of No Child Left Behind right now. I, I do believe that there are there's a handful of good things coming about from that, which would be to make all teachers and make uh, uh, accountable uh, for what we teach. But at the same time, uh, the format for testing these kids was something something other than just history. I just sat back and I'm sitting there going, you know. Uh, let me get through the, your format so that I, so that we can get monies from the state and also the federal government. Then I'm going to go back to actually teaching history, and we would get in departmental argumentations over what should be taught. Should we teach what the state wants, or should we teach what history is, and then open it up for interpretation? So it's um, it's still up in the air today, and and and, th- and there's a lot of different books and and beliefs out there, and 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 they are still clashing. So. Uh, we haven't we haven't got to an end on this yet, folks. We're speaking with Casey Quinlan. Um, he's co-written a book with Brian Edwards, who was our guest at the top of the hour, and uh, the book is called "Beyond the Fence Line: The Eyewitness Account of Ed Hoffman and the Murder of President Kennedy." Easy way to get the book, folks. As always, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book associated with tonight's guests, and I say that plurally, and uh, it'll take you right to a place where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Tonight's a great night for that. We're talking about the Kennedy assassination. Ed Hoffman, folks, was a a deaf person. Uh, He couldn't speak. Um, He witnessed what took place behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. Most witnesses we've interviewed so far on the show have seen what took place in front of the the uh, picket fence. Uh, Bev Oliver was here, as you know. Uh, Dr. Robert McClelland, he uh, was the doctor that worked directly on um, President Kennedy. Uh, Ted Sorensen's been on as well. We're talking about Ed Hoffman, and one of the tragedies with Ed Hoffman is he witnessed the darn you know, uh, essential, essential history. And um, the history books ignore him because law enforcement ignored him. Now, you met Ed prior to his death and, and spoke with him greatly. Um, how did he feel after all these years have passed by that uh, the history books just don't have this story correct? He must have been frustrated as, as all get out. 
Ed, uh, Ed was one of uh, a number of witnesses that myself and Brian and, and, and as well as our students uh, got an opportunity to question uh, within the past 30 years. And uh, Ed was one of the most phenomenal eyewitnesses that our students got to question. Uh, when I tried to prepare my students for a deaf person, uh, you know, they kind of said, well, you know, he, he didn't hear anything. How are we going to communicate? And we would always have uh, uh, interpreters with us, but we always had two or three individuals that had, take, had taken sign. But he was one of the most prolific witnesses that gave information, and our kids just paid attention tremendously. But Ed was frustrated. Ed was, uh, he was frustrated that his information never got out. And he, he wanted some sort of a forum to get that out. And part of it was was our uh, young students coming down and questioning him. And then later on, Brian and I decided that we needed to you know expand that by writing a book uh, on Ed. And, and we finally did so. And then after a couple of years after that was out, Ed passed on. But he was, uh, he was very passionate about what, about what he saw. And one of the most unique things that I think Brian and I had the opportunity to see is when we were with Ed uh, for about two weeks preparing uh, 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 you know, the first rough draft of the book, we actually took Ed all over Dealey Plaza where he was standing, and, and then we went back to his house, and I just asked him, I said, Ed, would you, would you please uh, kind of go over exactly, you know, go, just go back in time and, and, and the same feeling when you came home to tell your dad what – what did you actually do? And uh, he started to do the interpretation. I said, no, Ed. I said, I want you to come in as if I'm your dad, and I want you to try to tell me what did you actually see. And he finally he finally got it, and, I, and that was the very first time for me, even as an educator, that I, that I totally understood why some of the Dallas police and the, and the Dallas detectives basically thought that he was – uh, ignorant that he was the the uh, terminology deaf and dumb because he was trying to talk and as a deaf person th this person was trying to talk and he couldn't do it and he just sounded absolutely to them probably just ignorant and stupid and uh, I just sat there dumbfounded and I go oh my god I, I totally understand his passion but he couldn't get it out so hopefully uh, with our book and, and because of the uh, uh, student trips that we took with our students, uh, we, we've gotten that message out. And, and it's probably not all over the place yet, but, but we would certainly love to, love to have our uh, constituents out there read our book and, and kind of feel the same passion that we felt uh, go all these years with Ed. Was Ed able to write? Was he able to write English or – well, uh, what's interesting about that is is that I myself don't do any signing, and neither does Brian. But we picked up little little by little. Both of my daughters sign, and I would bring my daughters with me to help interpret. But they they grew up with uh, the American Sign Language, where, as you know, Brian said that Ed didn't. Uh, so what we would do is the way we could communicate. I would write things down. I always have a pad and a pencil and so would Brian and then we'd write something down and give it to Ed but what we didn't realize after Ed would turn turn the uh, uh, the book back to us I looked at it and it was broken English and it wasn't in order and I did not quite understand how 
uh, you know, how and why that was until I started to understand about deaf people. And it was a, it, it was a phenomenal experience, not only for, for Ed, but a phenomenal experience for us because we had to learn about the deaf. And it was uh, just a fantastic experience. And I hope, I hope that uh, through our book that uh, people can at least understand some of that material. You know, it's funny, Casey, and I completely understand because in Canada we have the two official languages, so everything has to be translated either into French or from French into English, and it's impossible. Uh, I say that because there are nuances in each language um, that are missed when you do a translation. I guess it would be the uh, apropos to uh, translating Shakespeare into a, a Russian or something like that. There are certain yep. nuances that just can't happen, and I understand that completely. Um, what were the revelations that Ed brought to you that you were unaware of? Well, uh, I, and I can remember this. We, we would always calm down uh, a little bit once we decided to go out to eat. And uh, I think people are a little bit more relaxed uh, and when they're sitting around having a soft drink and eating, and then, then you can converse a little bit. And then all of a sudden, questions coming up that didn't come up before. We had, uh, we had just finished eating a meal, and I, I asked Ed a question, and uh, he says, um, well, you know, the president came right by me. And I said, yes, you've told us about that. And this was probably about 15 years ago. Uh, and. Ed said, well, you know, the car stopped. And I said, what do you mean the car stopped? He says, the, the car, well, it was still rolling, but he says it, it, it slowed down enough that I was probably about 10 to 15 feet just above them, and I could see right into the back seat of the car. And I said, what do you mean? And he, he says, well, I, I could see the back of the president's head. I could see where Mrs. Kennedy was in the car. I could see the Secret Service... Uh, man, which is Clint Hill, laying on the back and halfway in the car. And then he says, I could see the two, two other Secret Service agents in the front. And he says, one of them was on a phone uh, trying to call somebody. That, that, that was his appearance, and, and the car was, it had slowed down completely. And I, I just said, you are kidding me. I said, this is the first time that I've ever heard anything like this. And I was writing furiously, getting notes down, and for probably about uh, about a two-hour period, Ed had started relating stuff that we had never heard before. So that was, uh, that was a phenomenal experience, and, and we put that together uh, with other material from the Warren Commission documents that the Secret Service had no idea where Parkland Hospital was. They were on the wrong ramp to the closest hospital, which wasn't Parkland but was Methodist Hospital. And uh, uh, it's just amazing. And, and then Ed also saw the back of the president's head. And we believe that he was probably the first civilian to actually see the back of the president's head as he described it. So, and Mrs. Kennedy was kneeling down in the footwell of where, the, uh, of where President Kennedy once had sat. And then he fell over into her lap. And then she, obviously she tried to crawl out the back of the trunk and then came back in. And she was on her knees shaking, shaking the president, and his head was uh, uh, face down. Yeah, I read that too, and I was—I I didn't realize that as well. So that was a revelation for me as well. We're going to start to wrap up now, but there's something I want to say uh, about both these guys, folks. Uh, Casey Quinlan is—we're talking to you right now, and our, our previous guest in the top of the hour was Brian Edwards. Their book, of course, is called Beyond the Fence Line, the Eyewitness Account of Ed Hoffman and the Murder of President Kennedy, www.nightfrightshow.com. 
click on the book cover, order this book. I want to say this, and I want to thank them because no private jets here, folks, as I like to say. There's no limousines. These guys are patriots. They do this. Um, they're not paid lawyers. They're not paid researchers. They put the book out. They hope to break even. They did this out of the goodness of their heart, out of their own patriotism, in the search, the quest for truth, because the government is us, folks. Uh, we've got to get this straight in democracy here in Canada, too. Um, they work for us, not the other way around. And too often, I think, we are complacent in democracy, and that's very dangerous, either by not voting or not by not taking action, by not questioning. And I have to give full kudos to both of you for taking this... Um, uh, the story of Ed Hoffman and making it available to future generations as well as, as generations right now. You've done a, a magnificent job. Kudos to both of you. Thank you very much, Brant. I want to thank you both for being on the show. Folks, Beyond the Fence Line, once again, the eyewitness account of Ed Hoffman and the murder of President Kennedy. www.nightfrightshow.com nightfrightshow.com It's running across the bottom of the screen right now. Uh, just order the book, folks. It's a terrific book. Uh, it's really going to fill in a lot of the pieces, and you'll be able to find out from a first-person witness what took place right behind that picket fence, November 22nd, 1963. I am Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for watching. See you next time. Listening to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio.